signs are all around us, aren't they? So you used, that works. You used signs to get here this morning. You stopped, you merged, you didn't go above 25 miles an hour. This past week, I bet many of us looked up in the sky and saw dark clouds forming and said, ah, a sign of rain. Signs are important because they point us somewhere. They direct us towards a deeper truth. Well, in the first half of the Gospel of John, we see a series of signs performed by Jesus. These signs are often called miracles, and of course, they do show Jesus' incredible power. But even more importantly, these signs point us to the truth about Jesus' identity and purpose. They point us not just to the deed, amazing as it is, but to the Savior accomplishing the deed and how amazing he is. This is actually John's goal as he writes his entire book. So towards the end in chapter 20, he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John is writing down these signs so that we might see Jesus for who he really is and so that we might put our trust in him. And the first sign comes in John chapter 2. So if you'll remember what Lee read for us earlier, in chapter 1, Jesus has arrived on earth as God in the flesh, the light of men. And as we read through that first chapter, we see his ministry begin and his disciples start to follow him. And then in chapter 2, we see the first sign. So follow along as I read John chapter 2. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves a good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Let's first look at the sign. And then let's look at the significance. So first, the sign there in verse 1. We see that Jesus and his followers have been invited to a wedding in a village called Cana which is probably about 10 miles from Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Uh, his mother is there too, so it could have been a relative of theirs getting married. And weddings in Israel in those days were a bit different from what we might think about today. So we typically get dressed up. We sit through a ceremony. We toast the bride and groom. We do a little dancing. We eat, and then we go home tired and usually happy. But in those days, weddings were long, drawn-out affairs, sometimes lasting up to seven days. And many times, the guest list would include the entire town. It was a big deal. And one of the most important elements of the wedding, as is often the case today, was the food and drink, particularly in this passage, the wine. The bridegroom was responsible to provide wine for the guests. To fail in that regard would mean shame for the family and possibly even legal action from the guests. 
Imagine bringing a lawsuit to somebody because they ran out of wine at their wedding. It's true, folks. In other words, just don't do it. It would be a disaster. So we get to verse 3, and we can understand the concern of Mary, Jesus' mother. She learns that there's no more wine left, and she goes to the person she trusts and loves, her eldest son, Jesus. So by this time, it seems her husband, Joseph, was no longer living. So she's presumably long uh, learned to rely on Jesus as her eldest. And it's not like she's expecting Jesus to work a miracle, because this will be his first one. She just needs his help. But in verse 4, we see Jesus respond in an almost curt way to his mother, don't we? He says, woman. What does this have to do with me? And to our ears, that sounds a bit rude, especially to say to your mom. But to be clear, Jesus is not being disrespectful. He's not dishonoring his mother. That word is not dishonoring woman, but it is distant. He's establishing some helpful distance between him and his mother. There's a little bit of a rebuke here. The sense of his question is, mother, what do you and I have in common in this situation? So he's beginning his earthly ministry and he's telling his mother that her plans won't always match up with his. As one person put it, he is reminding his mother that though he is her son, he's ultimately her Lord. This becomes clearer by what he says next. My hour has not yet come. So throughout the rest of John's gospel, this concept of Jesus' hour will come up repeatedly. It's pointing ahead to his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. Mary doesn't know all of what will happen yet, but here she's reminded that her son has a plan. And it's not time yet. Still, she trusts the current wedding predicament into Jesus' hands. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. So what does Jesus do? Well, in verse 6, he sees six stone water containers there being used for the purification rituals of the Jews. So these may have been used for guests to wash their hands or utensils, something the Pharisees would have demanded, the teachers of the law. So Jesus sees these jars and he tells the servants to fill them with water. So they do. And not only do they fill them up, but they fill them up to the brim, verse 7. But still the question remains, how will this solve anything? Just more water for washing? Verse 8, Jesus commands something that must have seemed quite ridiculous. He tells the servants to draw the water and take it to the master of the feast. So the master of the feast would have been in charge of the food and drink, providing refreshment for the festivities. You wouldn't just want to go up to the guy and say, here's some water, some wine, and he drinks it and it's water, right? That's just, that would have been a no-no. So unless these servants had already seen it turn into wine, I can't help but wonder if they were like, okay, this is going to get us fired, right? But they go up and they give it to the master of the feast. And he takes a sip. Maybe they caught their breath a little bit. And then he calls for the bridegroom. Uh Uh-oh, what's the problem? Well, John's already told us the inside scoop in verse 9. The water has become wine. And so in verse 10, you can almost hear a question in the master's voice. He pulls the bridegroom aside and says, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now? I mean, it seems like a good rule of thumb, right? Serve the best wine first when people are first getting to the party. That way they're alert, they enjoy the good wine, all's great. And then after things are rolling and people have had more to drink and they're more relaxed, then you can roll out the cheaper stuff, right? But here the master of the feast is amazed. This wine's so much better. Why hadn't they served that first? Jesus had not only turned water into wine, he had turned water into delicious wine. And that's where John leaves off in his account of Jesus' first sign. So Jesus answered his mother's request. He had turned the water into wine and graciously provided what was needing for the wedding. And I think for us, the first response we should have towards this sign is amazement, right? What Jesus does is truly astonishing. 
He doesn't cast a spell or utter an enchantment. He simply takes water, makes it wine, and gives joy to the guests. It's an amazing display of Jesus' divine power. He's creating wine out of water. He's not picking grapes, crushing them, barreling up the juice, letting it ferment, and then serving it up. He's not even speeding up that process magically. He's bypassing all of it and simply declaring regular H2O to be delicious wine. It's like he's creating something out of nothing. It's like he's God. And indeed he is. In fact, John has purposefully been echoing the creative power of God in his gospel so far. What Lee read for us earlier, he began in John 1 with that direct reference to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, Jesus had been with God at the beginning of creation. All things had been made through him. God had said, let there be light, and there was light. And Jesus says, let there be wine, and there is wine. Jesus is God. But there's even more going on here. Something even greater than Jesus' creative power. What John is trying to show is that Jesus is not only the creator, he is the re-creator. Jesus has not just come to create wine, he's come to recreate God's people. He's come to give them new hearts. He's come to save. That's the significance of this sign. So as we said in the intro, John's signs point us to something deeper than just Jesus' power. They point us to his identity and purpose. So how's that happening here? Well, you may remember that in the Old Testament, God covenanted with his people to be their God. And he instituted a law given through Moses. The law was a way for the people to see the holiness of God and what he required of them. It covered everything from sacrifices for sin, to rules for cleanliness, to civil matters. And the point of this law wasn't merely for God to exercise unlimited power. The point was actually to show God's mercy. See, God had created mankind perfectly. They were made to worship him, like we saw last week in Psalm 150, remember? This would be where they would find their greatest joy in worshiping him. But they and each of us have individually turned away from that joy. We've desired to make ourselves the gods of our lives. We have worshiped other things more than God. And that rebellion against God is called sin. It's repugnant to him. It's a distortion of his good creation. We have forfeited the relationship with him that he made us to enjoy. And the problem isn't that we are so bad. That is a problem, but it's not the only problem. The problem is that God is just really good. He's perfectly holy and just. And so when he's confronted with our evil thoughts, our impure motivations, our unjust actions, he will not accept us. He won't just sweep our sin under the rug as if it doesn't matter. He's a good God. He must judge sin. However, he's determined to show mercy. And so he pursued his people and called them to himself and provided ways for them to have their sins covered and placed on animal substitutes so they could worship him as their God. Those stone jars in verse 6 remind us of that legal system, even though this was something the Pharisees probably just added on to the law for fun. There were things that God's people did under the law that reminded them of their sinfulness and God's holiness. However, In reality, the law of the Old Testament could only go so far. It could show Israel their sin and cover it for a time, but it could never completely save them and make them perfect before God. Instead, the law acted like a mirror for them, revealing their blemishes and sins, but lacking any power to blot out those blemishes and completely wipe away those sins. God never intended his law to be his people's final salvation. It could never do that. What he did intend was to bring about something new. 
Though in Jeremiah 31, we read a promise. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And I will remember their sin no more. The law could never fully wipe away the sin from God's people's hearts. So God promised that one day he would give them new hearts. Hearts perfectly obedient to his law. He promised to bring a new covenant in which he would recreate his people making them born again, bringing redemption and life. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, we see foreshadows of the day when God would bring this salvation. Molly read one of them in Amos 9 at the outset of our service. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Isaiah 25 also promises a feast coming for God's people, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. In these passages, we see that one of the signs of the coming age of God's salvation is abundant wine. It's a sign of God's plentiful blessing. You can look later at Joel 3, 18 and see the same thing. Abundant wine represented for God's people the coming day of his salvation. And so here, in our passage, when Mary comes and tells Jesus to help with the wine, he sees immediately the deeper significance of her request. He recognizes immediately the calling that he has on earth to bring about a new covenant, to save his people to wash them completely free of their sin, to display his glory. And so he says, hold up. I'm not ready yet. I'm not ready to die and be raised again yet. But in his mercy, he silently performs the sign anyway. And he changes the plain old water of ceremonial purification, the water that could never fully wash away sins into wine, into the wine of the new covenant, symbolizing that the day of the salvation of the Lord had come. Messiah had arrived. The promise of new hearts for God's people was being fulfilled. That's significance behind this sign, folks. It's not just to show off Jesus' miracle working power. It's to show that he's the promised savior and he's come. See, a few years later, Jesus would give his life in the place of God's people and he would fulfill the old covenant, the sacrificial system, everything perfectly. He would keep the law of God perfectly, something his people could never do. But then in his great love, he would take not the blessings of the law, but the curse of the law on himself. He would bear all the law-breaking sins of his people on himself and take their punishment in their place so that anyone who would repent of their sins and trust in him would have their sins placed on his account and would be given complete, final, utter salvation. Jesus had come 
And Jesus had come to do what the law was ever impotent to do. He would wash his people clean forever from their sin. No wonder John had written in chapter 1, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. You see how what Jesus was bringing was so much better than the law. So much better than the old covenant. Jesus was bringing new hearts, everlasting hope, complete deliverance, the pleasing smile of God upon his people forever. I wonder what you think of this if you're here and you're not a Christian. You're welcome, by the way. We are so glad that you're here. I wonder if you've always kind of assumed, and you've kind of been told this by Christians, that what it means to be a Christian is to keep rules and do what's right. Let me tell you, that's, that's not true. Hopefully, in the new hearts that God gives us, we do do what's right, and we do follow after Christ. But first and foremost, as Christians, we understand that we're wretched sinners, the thoughts that have gone through our minds over the past week would make everyone blush. We are totally guilty before God. We have a great need of salvation because we cannot save ourselves from the just judgment of the Lord. But being a Christian means, praise God, we have found a Savior. And that Savior is Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, the one who came in the flesh, the Word made flesh, who would give himself for us. Being a Christian means recognizing we are great sinners against God, repenting of our rebellion and trusting in Christ and what he's done to be made right with God. Friend, if you want to be made right with God and you desperately need that, then you can only do so through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. You will never be able to please God perfectly on your own. So despair of that and turn to God's mercy offered you freely in Christ. He is so good. Turn to Christ and you will be saved. And Christian brothers and sisters, here at the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, he makes a grand announcement to us and to his disciples. The old is passing away. Behold, the new has come. And it's so much better. It's so much better. As one author writes, in the midst of this mundane wedding, Jesus performed a sign that sounded a trumpet, announcing the end of an old order and the dawning of a new. Church, Jesus took the waters, listen, he took the waters that the Jews used to clean the outside of their bodies from impurity. And he filled those same vessels with delicious wine, symbolizing the coming of a new covenant, one that did not merely deal with outward cleansing, but inward renewal, new hearts, new life. You see the amazing significance of this sign. In church, I want you to see that, that not only is this just a sign of Jesus' coming, but it shows how great Jesus' salvation is. Because this new wine wasn't just wine. It was excellent wine. When the master of the feast was taken aback, he was probably a little upset. 
Because this would show bad on his resume. He'd, show, he'd given the cheaper wine first. The significance of that is that Jesus' new salvation is so much better. It's excellent. The old covenant could never finally save, but the new covenant, Jesus' death and resurrection, is powerful to save. And not only was the wine excellent, but it was abundant. See the little detail that John adds in there, that they were filled up to the brim. And he even tells us how much these vessels would have carried. So we can presume somewhere we had between 100 and 180 gallons of delicious wine was created. I mean, I don't know when's the last time you've been to Total Wine or something, but that's a lot of wine and that's a lot of money. I mean, maybe they had leftovers to sell afterwards. In the same way, Jesus' new work of salvation is incredibly sufficient. It's overwhelmingly, abundantly enough. Go read Hebrews this afternoon and see how the blood of bulls and goats under the old covenant could never finally take away sin. And then think about how the blood of the new covenant, the very blood of the Son of God, saves completely and forever and for eternity. It does not sweep our sin under the rug. It casts our sin on God's own son so that we might be set free. And so John finishes this sign in verse 11 by saying two things happened. Jesus manifested his glory. So hopefully you've seen how that happened as he showed that he was the the king come to deliver God's people. The messianic kingdom had begun. And then two, his disciples believed in him. Verse 11. The disciples recognized what was happening. By God's grace, they they got an inside scoop into Jesus' first sign, which was kind of behind the scenes. They saw who they were following. They saw that the new age was beginning, that the promised Savior of God's people had arrived. What should this mean for us besides the fact that Jesus is God and he's our Savior? Church. As I was reflecting on this, I think there's something important for us to take away. Are you experiencing the abundant, excellent, rich wine of your Savior? Are you living in light of the incredible freedom that has been purchased for you? Do you remember this morning that because of Jesus and because of what he's done, there's no more judgment left for you? That it's all been poured out on Christ. Do you remember that Jesus has given you a new heart? And that now he invites you, as we looked at last week, to joy. He invites you to a wedding celebration Jesus performed his first miracle at a party, at festivities and fun. He showed that his salvation was coming to bring so much better joy than what the Israelites had ever experienced. So much greater peace than what the Israelites had ever experienced. So much greater refuge and comfort than the law could ever provide. And day after day, as we live this new life in our Savior, he invites us, he invites you, Christian, to come and drink freely of his salvation, to come and rejoice in his great love for you. So drink with joy. 
turn away from trying to claw and scrap to earn his favor. Church, don't, don't trust any longer in those old ritual ceremonial pots of your own self-righteousness. That only ends in misery. Confess your sin and rejoice in the delicious wine of the salvation of your Savior. In him alone will you find your deepest joy. In closing, let me read for you a prophetic invitation to drink of the Savior from Isaiah 55. The prophet thinks about the coming day of the Savior, and he thinks about the compassion of the Lord, and he says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy, eat, and eat. Come, buy wine and milk, without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good. And delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant. My steadfast, sure love for David. Christian, come and drink of the beautiful joy of your salvation. Feast yourself on the wonderful news that your Savior has come. In him alone will we always have a fountain ever flowing, satisfying all who drink, a spring of joy to all who hail him as their king. Let's pray for one another. Let's pray that we would turn away from the pursuit of our own performance and reputation things that will never satisfy and that we'd rejoice in what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the passage this morning and how we see beyond just a mere raw act of your power into the significance of your salvation. Lord, thank you that you have brought about something new in Christ that we no longer have to commit sacrifices or atone for our own sins to be pleasing to you, but that you have pursued us in our sin. And as you promised, in the fullness of time, you have given us new hearts as we have repented and trusted in you. Lord, we ask for your forgiveness for so often trying to work our way into your good graces. And forgetting that Jesus has died he's rose again so that we now can live in freedom from sin with no more fear of condemnation with no more fear of your judgment Lord as Loudon Valley Baptist Church today we pray that we would be continually set fear set free from any fear of judgment and rejoice in the abundant excellent salvation of our king we pray this in his strong name in the name of Christ Amen.